I will read from Acts chapter 7, verse 57 through chapter 8, verse 8. It's on page 776 if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, They all paid close attention to what he said, for with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. You might keep your thumb in that passage there. We'll be going back to it. Last Sunday, we commissioned Gontamer and Dagi and Timka and Tevna and Nandan as they were soon to head back to Mongolia. How many of you miss them already? I do. Um, And it was hard to do last week, especially because a little more than two days before last Sunday when we commissioned them, as many of you know, they learned from friends over in Ulaanbaatar that uh, the military ministry that really is a critical part of what Gontamer does had been shut down by the government. Uh, They were uh, not allowed to register for uh, uh, clearance to have that ministry go on, which they've never had that issue before. And I I thought about that all week. Here, here Gontamer was, you know, coming here to Beeson Divinity School and studying for four years, anticipating going back and enhancing that ministry all the more, which still might happen, and obviously we pray for that. But, But he really doesn't know what he's going back to. And we already knew that it's, it's going to be a, a trial for, for Gontamer and Dagi and for the kids, too, as they get settled in in a new place and adapt to the school and just the culture there. It's going to be tough. And I've thought about them uh, all week long. We, some of us saw them off early, early on Tuesday morning, and I had such admiration for Gontamer's resolve. He is determined to go back and see this thing through and make sure that his family gets well established there. But I've thought about them all week because really they are living examples, living letters, if you will, of what we're talking about this morning and what this passage is talking about as well, which is basically in spite of any trials like that, any setbacks you and I experience, when we are trying to be a missional people, a missional tribe, and we're going to face trials, we're going to face disappointments and failures and, and apathy sometimes, sometimes even persecution, yet we press on no matter what, as we scatter about in order to reach people with the gospel. Now, the last two weeks we've been in Acts chapter 2. Two weeks ago we talked about Pentecost because it was Pentecost Sunday and we celebrated the the birth of the church. 
Last week, we talked about the very end of chapter 2, which talked about the unique characteristics of the early church right after Pentecost and, and showed how some of what we're doing here is really mirroring that in a wonderful way, and that was something we could celebrate. There were good things going on in Acts chapter 2, but there's also a problem. Let's take it back to those words of commission that I quoted at the very beginning. And you can help me fill in the four blanks at the end. Really, the linchpin verse of all of the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, which is what? Jesus tells the disciples, but you will receive power when the what comes upon you? Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in, let's, let's rattle off the four, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, is that going on by the end of chapter 2 where there are good things going on in the Jerusalem church? No, not happening yet. Well, sure enough, chapter 3, right? Well, no. Chapter 4, is the church finally branching out? Eh, no. Go to chapter 5. Maybe this is where the expansion begins. No. Chapter 6, are they moving along finally, going to Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth? No. Chapter 6, chapter 7? No. <laughs> it's not until chapter 8 that they finally branch out and go as they do. Up until then, they really are a localized huddle. And they're not moving along. What was the catalyst? It's really at the end of Acts chapter 7. What was the catalyst that caused people to head on out where Jesus had commissioned us and them to go? What happened? Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, stoning of Stephen, that really was the catalyst that got things going. And again, let me read chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, Saul approves of the killing of Stephen. Saul, who would become Paul. And then it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Now we're beginning to fulfill this commission. It's a scattering, and yes, it's a scattering whereupon they are going to face all the more opposition, oppression, persecution, but they do it nevertheless. So as you and I scatter about being the missional church that we know we are called to be, we need to remain positive and hopeful. That's really what our text is telling us. First of all, we really need to remain positive no matter what. Many of you have been on mission trips where things got a little <laughs> convoluted, a little whatever, out of order, a little confused, a little disappointing, where you ran into a great deal of antagonism or, yes, oppression or indifference or whatever it might be, and you face different trials, and you're tempted to give up. You're tempted to, to, to get frustrated. You're tempted to get cynical about it all, but really the good news is that with Christ, we can power through those things, and these earliest of Christians realized that. They stayed the course. In fact, look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, the Greek word therefore preached is a great one because it, it literally means they preached the good news as it was good news. As some scholars say, they went along gospeling to other people. Isn't that great? They went about, scattered about gospeling to others, realizing that it's good news. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because these are people who have lost their homeland. They've lost their security. They've probably lost their financial means. They've probably been separated from family members. And yet they say, listen to this good news. Here's some good news I want you to hear. No matter where they are, that's what they're doing. They're gospeling it. These are strange people. This word that they're preaching has cost them so much, and yet they are going about 
gospeling. And they do. They go to Judea. They go to Samaria where no blue blood Jew or perhaps even a blue blood Jewish Christian would want to go. Those were the inferior people. And yet Philip immediately goes there. And what does it say there in verse 8? That there was great joy in that town where he was preaching. It was already making a dramatic effect. Even in the toughest of places, it can make an incredible impact. And we cannot help but compare ourselves to other people in the world who face multiple layers of oppression and challenge, the likes of which you and I will never face, at least on a regular basis. I think Gontamer and his family probably are a case in point. They're going to face more difficulty than you and I face on a regular basis. I also think of Rimshah Mashi and Reverend Munwar Rumsala and others who are in Pakistan right now. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the kind of the abuse of these anti-blasphemy laws in Pakistan. Uh, Rimshah Mashi was a, a mentally disabled Christian girl who was jailed for a month. Did you read about this? She was jailed for a month because of so-called heresy. And the only reason she got out of jail was because of the international outrage. And fortunately, people spoke up. She was able to get out, but it it traumatized her terribly. And Reverend Munawar Rumsala was interviewed recently. And and keep in mind that in Pakistan, 2.5% of the entire population is Christian. Uh, 97% is Muslim. Do you have extremists among them? Yes, you do. And Rumsala was being interviewed about what was going on in the northern area of Peshawar, where he was. And he just gave it to them straight and said, I've seen at least four churches shut down in the last week. I've seen people threatened on a daily basis. I get threatened all the time. He said, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but as, as he reported it to the AP reporter, he said... A lot of times they'll put on public display, they'll take Christian Bibles and and people will urinate on them just as a way of desecrating the Christian scriptures. And he said, this is going on in my city, my area, in and around Peshawar. And the interview went on and in spite of this overt hatred, just this horrific, horrific stuff, they asked him, well, uh, what are you thinking about it? And he said, it's a great opportunity. He said, you know, th- these, these persecutions that we're facing are a great opportunity for us to build relations with these Muslims. And the reporter said, even with Al-Qaeda? And he said, yeah, I know some Al-Qaeda people. And I'm trying to develop relationships with them. Can you imagine trying to do this on a daily basis? And they finally asked him, well, how is the church responding? What is your philosophy of this? And what is your church's response to this? How do you go about all of this? What is your response? And this was the last quote in the story. He said, we clean the wounds of those who hate us and those who would kill us. If you and I were to be in that situation, could we say that honestly? We clean the wounds of those who hate us and those who would kill us. And I mean, truly, there are people who would kill this gentleman, this pastor, other members of his church. If they can stand up in that manner, I think you and I can too and not let certain setbacks or oppression or bad attitude or whatever it might be, some terrible rejection, some terrible apathy, I I think we can get beyond letting those particular obstacles get the best of us, especially when we see this. We see people like this who, in spite of what they're facing on a daily basis, continue to gospel to continue to scatter about gospeling, just like the folks in the New Testament did in such persecution. So we need to stay positive when you and I face that kind of thing. We also need to stay hopeful. 
We need to stay hopeful even in regard to whom we might see as the most um, inconvertible, so to speak, the most incorrigible, people who we think are just completely either blind to or dull to, cold to the faith. Really, in the book of Acts right here, it's saying no one hated Christianity and Christians more than whom? Whom would you say? Look at Lewis 3. First of all, who approved of the killing of, of Stephen? It was Saul of Tarsus. And then look at verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church. Let, let me just stop there. The word destroy there is oftentimes translated as ravage, sought to ravage the church. The Greek word there literally connotes a wild beast mangling an innocent animal. That's what it's talking about there. Saul was wanting to mangle, destroy, ravage the church. And it goes on to say what? That he went off and dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Fast forward to Acts chapter 9 where he has the Damascus Road experience. Does anybody know why he was heading to Damascus? Go to the beginning of that chapter. It says what? Saul was carrying papers to Damascus. What kind of papers were they? They were ex extradition papers. What, what's, what, what do you do with extradition, right? Mac, you're a lawyer. When you extradite somebody, what do you do? You try to get them from one region or country to bring them back to put them to trial and throw them into prison. He was carrying extradition papers wanting to get followers of the way, it says followers of Christ, and bring them back and throw them into prison. But within weeks of this, who becomes the greatest advocate for the Christian faith that the church has ever seen? Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. An amazing story, which reminds you and me, we need not forget to stay hopeful, to not give up even on the Sauls out there who we think are just hopeless. We need not give up on them. I, lo I love the way that Saul, who becomes Paul, tells Timothy about it. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning of verse 15, he says, this is why God saved me. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul talking. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I think that's such a strong word for you and for me. He's saying, he saved me, he delivered me, he came into my life so that people could see just how patient God is because I was the worst of persecutors of the church and he was patient with me and yet still he opened his arms to me, his grace raining down upon me, which teaches us what? We, like God, as God was being patient for Paul, we need to be patient for the Sauls out there who have, in a sense, yet to become Paul. We need to be patient with those out there whom we are tempted to give up on, who seem to want to have nothing to do with this. We don't need to give up on the Sauls of the world. I think of Gene Williams. Uh, the first class I ever taught at the Baptist Seminary in Louisville when I was doing my doctoral work was called Formation for Christian Ministry. And, and I was only 27, and, and uh, most of the students were a little bit younger than me. They had just gotten out of college. There was one guy in there who was 49 years old. His name was Gene Williams. And this was before there were a lot of folks who were doing second career, you know, ministry as a second career. So it was all of us younger people and then a 49-year-old guy. And the more I learned about Gene Williams, I learned that he was this ruthless litigator in the city of Louisville, very pagan kind of guy. He and his wife lived a very open marriage kind of deal. And he was just kind of a wild cuss. And uh, there was a guy who befriended him from a church there. 
And there was one day where he just finally rather overtly shared the gospel with Gene. And Gene, to use his own language, which was kind of hip for a 49-year-old guy back then, he said, I got body slammed for Jesus that day. I'll never forget. That's how he shared his testimony. He said, I got body slammed for Jesus that day. And he said, I just didn't look back. Um, All his old friends left him. His wife left him. He tried to, you know, share the love of Christ with her and was bound and determined to love her in a new way, in a very committed way, as Christ and his commitment to him loved him. He wanted to love her that way. Seemed like a great kind of entree, nice invitation, but she would have nothing to do with it. And she left him. I'll never forget, we were just kind of sitting there listening to this story unfolding, and he said, "But, but folks, I am right where I am called to be. This is where I need to be in spite of all that I have faced and in spite of all the rejection I have uh, really run into as of late. This is what I'm called to do. And Gene's a pastor uh, to this day. Don't give up on the Sauls. Um, the thing I remember best, uh, some of you were at the True Vine banquet with True Vine Church in Inglenook uh, that we had recently. It was great food, uh, great testimonies from these folks whose lives are becoming whole. Uh, Ralph Garth preached a great sermon. There was incredible dancing that Tim and I did. And uh, it was just amazing. But uh, the most memorable thing for me that night, and it was funny, I was talking to Tom McKinnon, who's in the first service. Tom said, that's exactly what I remember as well. Seemed, seemed minor to me at the moment, but the more I ruminated on it over days and weeks, I thought, that's what's going on. Uh, we were sitting there eating our meal, and this was before the singing and testimonies and all of these guys who have come out of such uh, difficult circumstances uh, through Ralph's ministry there. And I got a text from my wife, Deanna. Uh, Deanna could not be there because she had to be at another function, but she texted me to say they have caught the other terrorist. Just a few days before uh, that the Boston Marathon bombing had occurred, and she texted me to say, I just wanted you to know, and you can spread the word, that the second terrorist, that young man, has been captured and is in custody. And I was so pleased. I remember the Bonds were sitting there and some other folks, and I said, hey, just to let you all know, and they were like, oh, that's great. Charlotte Coggin came around, who was sort of the MC and in charge of everything, and I just mentioned it to her, and I said, you might want to mention that to folks. And she said, well, you haven't gotten up there to say anything. You get up there uh, when there's a window of time. And I was like, okay, I'll get up there and you know, share some of the facts that, that Deanna had uh, texted to me. And, and I've got to be honest about this. I got up there to share just the word, and I said, I, I really have some, some good news. The second terrorist of the Boston Marathon bombing has been captured. There were some amens, you know, and some applause and everything. And then, <laughs> this is one of those times where, well, I am a pastor, and there's Pastor Ralph, and there's Pastor Tim, and there's other people, and it's kind of a church kind of thing. So I feel like I need to say something pastoral. You know, we're, we're, that's just our thing, you know. And so I thought, well, obviously, folks, we want to continue to remember the victims and the victims' families. Amen, you know. And I said, uh, we want to give thanks for these law enforcement officials who were able to capture this young man. And then I said, but, and I'm just going to be transparent with you, I, pr- I probably said this more because it was the thing to say at the moment, okay? And I said something like, and we also need to pray for this young man, because this reminds us that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. And folks, there was a huge amen and huge applause, huge ovation, and I'll be real honest, I noticed that it was by far primarily from folks from what church? True Vine. 
And I didn't think about that a whole lot at the time, but the more I thought, wow, why was that the thing I remember about that incredible evening? And I thought, well, we heard these testimonials from these guys who came through this, this restoration program that Ralph oversees, and these are guys who had been crack addicts and, and alcoholics and had either been in broken families or had caused broken families. Uh, and so many of them in abject poverty, and the list goes on and on. All these layers of oppression that these guys have, but they come to Ralph. Ralph helps them get clean and helps them get jobs and helps them put their lives back together. And I thought, well, no wonder they are so applauding this big ovation. They are closer to the darkness in many ways than you and I are. It's just the way it is. And they have seen, even in the lives of these men, much more up close and personal than you and I have, that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. And they see it much more on a regular basis. I know we have helped True Vine a whole lot. You know what? They have blessed us a lot, too. I'm just so blessed to see these ministries where these guys' lives get turned around. And I think that's why that sticks in my brain so much and in my spirit because because I remember that they were the ones who said, yes, you're exactly right, amen. No one is outside the reach of God's grace. Don't give up on the Saul's out there. Don't give up on the Saul's out there. Help join together and get out there and reach those folks whom you dare to deem unreachable because they are reachable. We've got to stay positive and not give up hope for these folks. And, and finally, I want to get to one little thing that's really Brookwood specific. Stay local as well. <laughs> stay positive and hopeful, but stay local. We are called to scatter locally too. I guess the true vine thing reminds me of that. In this passage, while folks were scattering to Judea, Samaria, ultimately to the known world, there were still people who remained in Jerusalem, including the apostles, and others remained there. And there continue to be the types of gatherings that we talked about last week that, that's talked about at the end of chapter 2. They still met in the temple courts for large formal worship, as we're doing. But they also met in homes and community groups and broke bread and prayed with one another and supported one another. Jerusalem continued to be a primary headquarter church when there was a bad famine in the upper 40s A.D. Paul was careful to go around and, and build up a collection for the church at Jerusalem to help that church, along with people who lived in that city that was just in such, desperate, such a desperate state because of the famine. In other words, they scattered about, but at the same time, the church did not at all neglect Jerusalem. Well, you see where I'm going. Even as you and I scatter to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, which we are good at doing here, we need not neglect Jerusalem. And I'm talking about this church in specifics and our city more broadly, Birmingham. Last week, Tim uh, Clark, and Tim's not here. He's celebrating his 40th anniversary with Brenda, which is great. Uh, Tim sent an article to the staff, which I think we could forwarded to some of the deacons, and it's really a great article. It's by a guy, guy named Tom Rayner, who runs uh, Lifeway up in Nashville. I don't agree with all of Tom's theology, but I do appreciate a lot of his survey work. And this is something he did recently, which I find significant because of how it relates to Brookwood Baptist Church. Let me just walk through this. The title of his article was Six Recent Lessons I Learned from Turnaround Churches. He starts out talking about, sadly, the fact that nine out of ten churches in America are declining. Nine out of ten. I mean, they are not adding any members at all. They are losing members, losing enrollment. Thank God we're in the 10%. We're, we're gaining, actually, not by leaps and bounds, but we're gaining, okay? 
That's great news. But that's not really what he's talking about. What he's talking about is he interviewed 19 pastors whose churches had moved from struggling to breakout. And I'm not saying we're struggling here. I'm just saying that that's the basis of this survey. And these 19 pastors had been at their churches for at least four years, and the churches had been declining, but then things began to reverse. Well, what happened? Were there any common things that were going on? Well, they first of all were careful to say, well, a lot of it is just God doing his work and being faithful to us. It isn't just all methodological. But they said there were some common themes that were worth noting. I just want to walk through these. Because I'm encouraged as far as how... uh, We are scattering about even here and can scatter even more. First of all, these churches led the church, or these leaders led the church to become highly intentional about starting new groups. Tom Rainer says the fewest groups started by any one of the churches were four in a one-year period. Guess what? In a six-month period, we talked about this last week, how many new groups have started here at Brookwood in six, uh, six months? 22. 22. And that's in addition to the ones that we already had. It's pretty good. And uh, as I mentioned last week, for those of you who are here, you know, uh, uh, great feedback on those. People have positive responses. Eric Williamson gave a great uh, testimonial about what his community group was meaning to him. People are wanting to continue that and get in another group uh, come fall. We're going to have some new opportunities uh, in the fall. So that's all great and good. Uh, secondly, they led the church to, a, to be a culture of inviting people. And it's really on two levels. One is people were intentional to wherever they found themselves a lot during the course of a day, at school, in the neighborhood, at work, wherever else it might be. They were intentional about cultivating perhaps a friendship and finding the right point at which they would uh, invite that person to church. That's great. Uh, But they also talk about uh, uh, cultivating a welcoming community in the church. And I talked last week about something that, that a pastor friend of mine in Kentucky told me about that what he does. He's at a church that has not deacons but elders, but they engage in what's called the two-minute drill. They decided at the end of a worship service, after the benediction is stated, for the first two minutes, they do not focus on even their families or people to whom they would normally gravitate. They look for people to whom they have never spoken. They just immediately look around and go around, and and it might well be a first-time guest. It might be a tenth-time guest. It might be somebody who's been a member a while, but you just don't know them. And that's great to go talk to them as well. That's the two-minute drill. I hope you'll start doing that here. The deacons were really all over that. They like that, and I think the deacons are going to be doing that, but I hope you will too. In fact, Stephen, did we get together a clock for... Okay, (laughs) I didn't know you actually did it. There's actually going to be a clock up here this time. We're not going to do it every Sunday. But after the benediction, you're going to see a big clock up here, right? you got two minutes... Look around, okay? Are we going to have a horn at the end of it or something? Or just scream or something? I don't know. But I think what a great habit to undertake, to take the first two minutes and don't worry. And now if you've got some family and you've got to take care of them, understood. But if you really don't have an excuse, gravitate towards someone you've never spoken to before. We can do just that. A culture of welcoming. My goodness, I think even the pledgers ministry that they have, talk about a culture of inviting and welcoming, even at the point of, of adoption. Man, what an incredible commitment that is. I hope and pray that you and I will help to support you guys in whatever ways that we can. What a great word that you guys offered. Okay, so again, number one, they led the church to become highly intentional about starting new groups. Secondly, they led the church to a culture of inviting people. Thirdly, they began new member classes. Now, This is something we haven't done. Uh, It says these classes set the tone for new members. We have great Sunday school classes here, so that's something at least worth studying on. 
doesn't apply to us as much right now. We don't have new member classes, but we can talk about that, study that. Fourthly, they began a major community ministry. Some of the churches adopted local schools or a local hospital, or they partnered up with a different church, a church that was very different from them geographically, socioeconomically, etc. Hello, two words, what? True vine, there you go. <laughs> We've done that, we're doing that, and we're being so incredibly blessed by True Vine and their ministry, and hopefully we're blessing them as well. Fifthly, members prayed specifically for unchurched people by name. I thought that was interesting. And maybe you can just think of one, a, a Saul whom you know, whom, whom you have tried to reach, find it challenging to reach, and yet it's somebody that you might need for the next six months of this year with this emphasis on real people, real life, real love. Just pray for that person every day. And who knows what God can do through those prayers and through his own power, obviously. And finally, the leaders began to focus less on negative people and circumstances and more on God's possibilities. And I was like, okay, Tom, break that down. And what Tom how he explained it is the leaders became in God's power people of faith instead of people of fear this spirit of faith became pervasive in all the churches I love hearing that because I remember a number of years ago uh, a lay person in here in fact is in this room but I won't look at him because I don't want to embarrass him but I remember somebody saying you know we need to be a church that doesn't operate out of fear but operates out of faith oh I looked over that way but operates out of uh Faith and not fear, which was a great thing for us to lock into. And, and, and after that, we talked some, I don't know if you remember this, because this was a number of years ago, but we talked about coveting the good. Coveting the good going on at a, at a church. And that's hard for you and me because sometimes we are perfectionists in this area, in this culture in which we find ourselves. Uh, Greg Davis in the first service uh, shared a, um, an, Ital an old Italian adage which is, I think it's perfection is uh, uh, the enemy of good. Perfection is the enemy of good. I think that's a great point. To me, that's very theological, by the way. God created everything, and at the end of each day, he said, it is what? Good, right? And the people, Adam and Eve, were good. The problem was they wanted to be perfect. They wanted to be like God, and that's when things went awry. I think perfectionism is the enemy of good. You can chew on that one. And again... Some time ago we talked about, yeah, we can be perfectionistic here. And part of the problem is sometimes, and we know, oh, Brookwood is chock full of type what people. Come on, type AP. I know, I know, I get tired of A, exactly. And, 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 and we issued that challenge to move from being type A people to type, boy, now, hey, people in the first service, there were some who got this, moving from type A to type whoever said that, you can leave. You, extra credit, go to recess. Wonderful. Type G, G4, grace, grace. And again, uh, leading in a way, leading one another in a way that's positive, not focusing on the negative, not focusing on that which is not perfect, but being a type G people and operating out of faith and not fear. And I read this article by Tom Rayner, and I'm so glad Tim found it because it, it really encourages me with where we are and where we're going, and I hope you can sense that. But the challenge there is to realize, even as we scatter uh, to the hinterlands, to the ends of the earth, we need to scatter here as well amongst ourselves and be the church God wants us to be even here as well. Bottom line is, as we scatter, because of the gospel, as we go gospeling, we have the power to power our way through whatever obstacles we face. Um, this semester... Uh, I have a student, I'm going to call him Michael, 
And Michael uh, started texting me. He found my number, started texting me, hey, Dr. Martin. And he, oh, he, he just had a rough semester. A girl thing, grades, another girl thing, and uh, just other stuff going on. Oh, Dr. Barnett, it's a tough day. Blah, blah. And, you know, again, to throw back the curtain, you know, we're trained to be pastoral and to have a pastoral response to someone who is struggling like that. And so I would type something, you know, pastoral, there you go, send it, God bless you. And, and I would do that. And I do enjoy doing that. Come on now. I mean, but you're kind of trained. Hey, you got to respond. But I kept getting these texts, and I'm like, oh, okay. God bless you, and, you know, God's providence, and, you know, you're a person of worth and created in God's image. And, you know, send, you know, oh, she said no again. Oh, well, you know, there's always hope. And, uh, you know, there was a point where I reached my limit. It was I just I looked down, I was like, okay, pastoral reservoir is gone. And for whatever reason, true story, I texted, I just said, tomb's empty, send. <laughs> I didn't even, the tomb is empty. That was too many words, I was sick of it. Tomb's empty. Waited and I thought, maybe I shouldn't have, you know, that... And I get back, gonna get get back. Ha ha ha! LOL. Yeah. Ha ha ha! LOL. Oh, thanks so much, Doctor Barnett. Rest of the semester. Doctor, she said no again. But tomb's empty. You know. <laughs> Thought I had an A minus. It was a C plus. But tomb's empty. <laughs> you know. Didn't go to the dance. Tomb's empty. You know. Uh, was hoping to uh, go and do a mission work this summer in Africa, but he wasn't sure if it was going to work out. Tomb's empty. He, he wound up getting over there, and it was great because he said, I haven't gotten all my shots, and I don't know how this is going to pan out. I don't know what this ministry is like, but tomb's empty. And it is. Let's pray. That's enough for us to go on, oh God, as we scatter and as we face the challenges out there in the world, that's enough for us. Your grace is sufficient. Having the Holy Spirit in and among ourselves is sufficient. We can continue to gospel along because of what you've done for us. We thank you for that. Teach us to be all the better missionaries that we're called to be. We pray these things in your name. Amen.